Awesome. Well, as Larry said, my name is Sellers. I'm the college pastor here at North Star. And thank you so much for joining us today, whether you're here in Compass, you're watching in the chapel, or you're watching online. Look, it's fall break for some schools. If you're at the beach, let's just be honest, we're jealous. It's like 50 here. We're jealous. The sand would be nice. But thank you for taking the time out of your week to join us this morning. Today, we're gonna begin to look back at Acts chapter six. If you wanna go ahead and flip there to get a head start, we're gonna look at the early church and some decisions they made. Ultimately, I believe this, and I think it rings true. Each of us at some point in our life will have to make a major decision that doesn't just have an impact in that moment, but its impact is felt for forever. So we're gonna look at Acts six, the early church, and see their decision they had to make. They had two choices, gospel unity or the death of a movement. I think back to the the hit movie in 2000, Remember the Titans. So I'm gonna, again, if you've not seen it, I'm gonna spoil it for you, but it's 21 years old. So like it can legally drink now. It's not a spoiler anymore. So in this movie, we have this school that is integrating. Again, races are coming together to be one, to be unified. And more importantly, we have a football team that is coming together. So we have Coach Herman Boone, we've got Coach Yost. Yost is the head coach, steps down to the assistant role. Coach Herman Boone comes in. Everybody wants Denzel to to depict their life. Well, Coach Boone got it. So he got to see Denzel on the screen looking as dapper as he did. And in this moment, we see that this group have to begin to make their choice. Again, they're unifying together. And along the way, there were some growing pains that happened. I mean, they had to figure it out, right? There was arguments, there were fights, there was an early morning run to Gettysburg. And at the end of the movie, Gary Bertier, one of the linebackers, the co-captain, one of the stars of the movie, gets into an accident. And he's laying in his hospital bed, and his other co-captain, his other linebacker, Julius, comes to visit him. And as he walks in, the the nurse notices and says, hey, I'm so sorry, only Ken's allowed. And to which Gary responds, Alice, are you blind? Do you not see the family resemblance? That's my brother. So let's play this story out. What would happen in that moment if that school would have refused to integrate? What if Coach Yost, again, this movie, you just lay it out in your head. Coach Yost, the school board comes to him and says, hey, we need you to step down or bring in another coach. And he says, no chance. This is my team. I'm the head coach. I'm not leaving. You're firing me if you have to. I'm the head coach of this football team. What if the parents say, no, no, no. My boy's not losing his playing time. We'll transfer. We'll go to another school. We'll go to somewhere that he can get some time on the field. Maybe Gary Bertier, the linebacker, says, no, 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 this is not my other linebacker. I don't like him, I don't agree with him, we're fighting all the time, they're calling audibles together, they're calling, talking over each other. What would the movie look like if the direction or the decision went a different way? Because like we're gonna talk about today, they had a choice to make, unity or the death of a movement. It'd be a pretty bad movie, I wouldn't be quoting it from the stage if that's the direction it went. So my encouragement, my goal for you today is this, to encourage you to choose unity for the sake of the movement. Acts chapter six, if you would, let's stand together as we read God's word this morning. And really we do this for two reasons. The first reason is this, we do this because this is the living and active word of God that's searching our heart today. 
So we stand out of reverence and awe for it. But secondly, we do this as well to stand on the promises of God. Again, we're reminding ourselves that he has been faithful, he is still faithful, and forevermore he will be faithful. Acts chapter six, Luke, Luke writes, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, I pray that you meet us in this place today. And I don't know what we came in here with, whether we were coming off of fall break, whether we're heading into fall break, whether we haven't had a fall break in centuries. God, I pray that you would meet us here. God, in the busyness of life, that we would take a moment to let your word search our hearts, that we would humble ourselves. God, maybe we begin to set up walls or requirements or specific ways that you, you are allowed to speak to us. God, I pray that we tear those down today, that we clear, clearly hear from your word in this early church how we as North Star should look as a body of believers. So be with us today, Lord. Search our hearts. It's your name, I pray all these things. Amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for standing with me. So this morning, here's my goal. I'm gonna kind of give you the roadmap for the morning. We're gonna look at this story in three different scenes. So the first scene we're gonna talk about today is the roadblock. The roadblock. Again, there's a movement that is happening. There's momentum gained by this early church and there's a problem that arises, a block in the road. We see that in verse one, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we have these widows being neglected. And again, in, in this day, a widow is very different than today. Because in that day, women could not hold land typically. They typically did not have a job. So if, if their husband had died, they were on their own. I mean, maybe they had children that would love and care for them and keep up with them and help provide needs. But if they hadn't had any children, which was already a disgrace for a woman in that time, then they are in a bad, bad place. So luckily, the priests of that day in the Old Testament and even up until this moment, the priests were beginning to share and love and care for the widows. So not only do we have widows in the group that are being neglected, but the other part of the problem is this, they were Hellenist widows. So we're like, hey, I'm not gonna be that guy, but what, what's that mean, what's a Hellenist? Essentially, a Hellenist is somebody who was from Greek tradition. So they grew up probably in Greece, they probably spoke Greek, they were what we would consider the Gentiles. And then we have the Hebrews as well. So we've got the more Jewish. They grew up in Israel. They speak Aramaic. So we have not only widows that are being neglected, but there's a bigger division that's already happened over centuries, a racial division. I mean, a division that has been labeled as Greeks and Jews, as Israelites and Gentiles. I mean, these people were 
separated for the majority of their life. And because of Jesus and what he had done at the cross, they were now told that they were one family. I don't know about your family, but sometimes there's some growing pains when you have multiple people entering into the mix. So I'm the middle son in my family, so we've got all boys. Shout out to my mom, I'm holding it down. I have an older brother who's four years older and a younger brother that's five years younger. So there's nine years of difference. I'm in the middle, which means I'm the favorite and get all the attention, of course. Uh, not really, it probably didn't happen that way in anybody else's head. But in that, we see that there's some growing pains. Oh, my brother's going off to college. What does that look like? My younger brother's still in elementary school. How do we play that out? Oh, he's annoying me. I'll just hit him. I mean, that's easy. We'll settle this here. And we begin to have growing pains within our own family. Again, we're blood. And in this day, they were told, hey, even though you've been separated, come together as one family. So there were some growing pains there as well. I mean, there were some language barriers. Again, some spoke Aramaic, some spoke Greek. There were some cultural barriers, things that they were raised to do and traditions they held. Again, there's not really a specific reason why this was happening, but there was just division among them. And what we see from this text is really clear that it wasn't intentional that these widows were left out. Honestly, the reason that this happened was less because of race or less because of their stage in life as widows, but because of the massive number of people that had just joined the church. If you flip back to Acts 2 and Acts 4, just in those two chapters, you'll see that over the past few months, 8,000 people have joined the church. I mean, literally, like, we think of a church in a room this size, and we can, we can kind of manage this. Think if we filled up Fifth Thirds Bank Stadium on Busby Parkway. That's 8,000 people. And notice as well, not only are we in a full stadium, but there are 12 apostles. I mean, I don't know. How many of you parents in the room have three or more children? Raise your hand. If you have three or more children. My hand is not raised. That was just a symbolic hand right there. Because ultimately, Hannah and I don't have children. And what I have been told all throughout my life is the jump from two to three is massive. Because you're going from man-to-man defense to zone defense. Now, personally, I don't know why we consider parenting as just defense, but I mean, again, I'm not there. We'll figure that out as we get there. But we see that. Again, you go this way, I'll go this way. Oh, I'll drop this one off and then drop that one off. You take this one that way. I'll rock two to sleep. You care about this one. And what was one-on-one now becomes zone defense. Imagine playing zone defense 12 to 8,000. It's not good odds, is it? And this is a day where there's no phones, there's no Zoom no group me or group chat or email. No, no, no. If you wanted to care for somebody, you home? Okay, sweet. They're not here. I've got to remember to come back. Now I don't need a paper typically. I'm just kidding. They have paper. They're not that old. Um, but in this, we see the challenge. That for us today, if we had 8,000 members here at North Star, there would still be a challenge. I mean, literally 12 people on our staff is just our next gen team. From preschool with Haley Moyer up to me in college, there's about 12 people dealing with a stadium full of needs. It's a pretty tough task, right? So what could have been seen as an intentional disservice instead was just a lack of organization. They haven't had to worry about 8,000 people before. It's been everybody in a living room up to this point. So we see that this movement, again, comes to a crossroad, the roadblock, the moment where there is a, a problem and what are we gonna do with it? And we see your first point of today is this, that they assume the best. They assume the best. I mean, the Greeks began to assume the best about the apostles. 
They could have easily gossiped about it. Man, I can't believe they've left out our widows. Man, I can't believe it. How could they not think about them? Do they not care about widows? Do they not care about old ladies who need some food? What is wrong with them? They could have gossiped about it. They could have slandered the apostles. Hey, man, these guys are bad. They don't care about old ladies at all. They don't, they don't care about providing needs for anybody. They don't care for people other than themselves. But instead of choosing to gossip or slander or name call, instead we see that they assume the best. In verse one, it says that there was a complaint. And really what that word means in the Greek is ultimately there was a secret displeasure. It's one of the few times we see it in the Bible, there was a secret displeasure. Now, again, I'm speaking for myself, maybe not for you guys, but most of my displeasures aren't a secret typically. I mean, they may not know, like, oh, I'm not really that fond of this person, and they don't know it, but everybody around knows that I'm not fond of that person. Again, we have these secret displeasures, and ultimately we see that the Greeks gave the benefit of the doubt. They began to assume the best, and they went straight to the ones who could help with the problem. Again, ultimately, we see this same principle can be used for us today. Again, if you don't get anything, maybe this is the best advice to you the week. Assume the best this week. Man, my friends all went to dinner and I didn't get the invite. Assume the best. Man, they said this thing about me and I heard about it. Man, it hurt so bad. Assume the best. UGA is four and O. Nash. We'll hold our breath on that one. We'll, we won't assume the best till the end of the season, maybe. Because when we begin to assume the best, when we give the benefit of the doubt, we sometimes realize that people aren't against us like we think they are. Because typically, we're quick to assume the worst, am I right? Whether it's in words somebody said, whether it's in a person, maybe the situation, man, this is the worst. We're very quick to assume the worst. When we clearly see laid out here that these early church believers were assuming the best. Because what Satan loves to do, again, we see it all throughout this early part of Acts in particular, Satan loves to use unintentional wrongs to create conflict. Something, somebody said something, they didn't mean it that way, they took it this way, and he loves to use unintentional wrongs to create conflict in the body of Christ. And friends, you probably don't need me to tell you this this morning, but I'm going to anyway. The outside world is looking at you. They're looking at the body of Christ to see how we respond when conflict comes. How will we choose gospel unity? That starts with us assuming the best. So that's scene one, the roadblock, the problem of the story. Then we get to kind of the bulk of the text. The second scene, the responsibility. So this is verses two to six, the responsibility. Who now steps in and helps these people? What does it look like for us to meet the needs? There's a problem, what is the solution? So we see that the need is brought to the apostles. The, the Greek believers come and say, hey, here's where we're at. I feel like you're neglecting these people. And they begin to step in and figure out what to do. Now, the apostles are more than capable of handling the problem on their own. Like they could have easily divided up. There's 12 of them. All right, you're in charge of widows. You're in charge of this. You're in charge of that. But instead, what they decided to do was to call up other leaders to serve this group of people. Again, it doesn't mean they don't love widows. It doesn't mean that they don't care and want to meet their needs. They just began to call up other people into leadership to best serve this group of people. Again, honestly, it's interesting that even in verse three, it says he, they tell them to appoint people themselves. I don't know how that looks with 8,000 people, but hey, come with seven. Probably not gonna go too well. 
But again, they trust their people to appoint these leaders and to help lead the widows. What it would look like if the apostles chose the opposite, again, to choose to kill the movement, the death of the movement, it would have looked like them holding a tight fist on everything. They gotta do it all. They've gotta be everything for everybody. They've gotta fix every problem. What if Mike Lynch on a Sunday morning, he was up here preaching and he finished and he closed his Bible and went off and went up to our children's space and they, they were teaching material. He said, oh, I can do better. Hey, children, gather back around. We're gonna teach another story. This is a better story. Oh, Christy, let me rewrite that curriculum. You didn't do good enough. Hey, Seth, I know you hit a D on the way when you were going off. It was a D over F sharp. I need you to work on that. We need that bass note. Mike Wynn, I know you've got small group leaders, but I don't know about them. Here's the people I want. No. I mean, personally, if, if that was Michael Lynch, you, you wouldn't see me on the stage because I'd be, I would feel unloved and untrusted. But luckily, like Mike and like these apostles, they trusted the body of Christ to do what God had created it to do. They gave freedom, they gave trust, they gave faith into their people and said, hey, here's a need, let's figure it out together. Let's do this together. They trusted their people to make the best choice to love their church. Sometimes that can be hard. But for us as pastors and everybody else in the room, we have to begin to trust each other to help the movement be unified. And something to note here that's really interesting is the seven names that are listed are all Greek names. They're names that have typically, it would seem like they're more of the Hellenist believers. So it says, hey, here's a problem. We're neglecting the Hellenist widows. Here's some Hellenist believers who have a relationship with them. Let's put you guys together and let's begin to serve each other. They presented the need and they came to solve it. Men, have you ever uh, made the mistake of presenting a need to your wife? It doesn't go too well typically, right? I tell Hannah, Hannah, man, the house is just so dirty. It's a wreck, the dishes are piled up and Hannah would respond like the apostles would, correctly saying, hey, here's some soap and a sponge. Get to work, figure it out. You got some elbow grease yourself. Because again, we weren't created to do everything on our own. Again, if you're taking notes, this would be a good one to write down. You can't be too busy to fix a problem if you are, ooh, here we go. You can't be too busy to fix a problem if you have enough time to point it out. Again, if you have enough time to point out the problem but don't have enough time to fix it, my question would be, what are your motives behind it? Are you just trying to sow distrust in your group? Are you trying to nag people? Are you trying to critique people? Or are you willing to see a problem and to step into a need that needs to be met? And again, just like the early church here at North Star, we give you the freedom to do that. You see a need, step in. Come on, we got it. Like, hey, I wanna run for PTA president. Let me text Mike Lindemann and ask his permission because he's over the community ministry. So that's in a school. So let me, let me see if he would, would like me to be the PTA. Go for it. You don't need his permission. You, you are, if you see a need, fill the gap. You have our permission as a staff, as a body. If you see a need, step in. Because there will be needs that we won't see that you'll see easily and that you would have a great gifting to serve in that way. And maybe again, you're, you're saying, why is this the case? We see all throughout scripture that the Christian life is marked by service. Again, the Christian life is marked by service, how we serve others. We see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. What does it look like to serve other people? Many of these men have a PhD from seminary. 
Did they work all the way through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology? Had they even really been believers that long? No. They were ordinary believers stepping into the calling that God had placed on their life to serve. If you are a believer in this room, you are called to live a life of service. And that looks different for everybody. But the word is clear, we are called to serve and love others. So my question is to you today, where are you called to serve? Where are you called to serve? Where are you pointing out a need that maybe you can step into and fulfill your God calling? Are you waiting for somebody else to do it? Because again, there are needs all around us. If you don't know where to go, I wanna give you a couple kind of avenues to think through. So there's, I think there's three places to serve. And ultimately, again, this won't fit every need. This won't fit every kind of avenue or category, but it'll get majority of what you can serve at. So the first place is this, a place of skill. So the first place you can serve is a place of skill. Like, what are you good at? Is it your job? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> we ain't gonna take a poll when I gotta pass a microphone around. Maybe you're good at what you do. You're the best at Excel sheets. Man, how can you use Excel sheets to serve God to his glory? Personally, I can't glorify God with an Excel sheet to save my life. I am so bad at them. Literally, somebody can put in a function and a, an equation. I'm like, how, I, I don't know how that counted for me, but that's awesome. And that's super simple. But ultimately, God has called us to the place that we work, not just to work or to get an income, but he has placed us there with that exact skill to glorify him. So let me ask a couple areas in the room. Nurses, how are you serving your patients? Is it get in, get out? Oh man, this, this guy complains all the time. He's always in pain. I'm gonna get in, get out as quick as I can. Teachers, is it your students? Do they know that you love them regardless of the grades they make? Regardless if they're getting on your nerves that day or not? Coaches, what about you? Do your players know that you care for them more so than how they perform on a Friday night? Because again, if we're called to serve in our place of skill, it looks like loving people on their good days and their bad days. Coming around people when life is great and when life has hit the fan. We're called to serve in a place of skill. So that's, that's the first place you could probably serve. The second place is a place of passion. And hopefully these two line up a little bit, a place of skill, a place of passion. Maybe you love what you do. Look, let's be honest, some of you don't, and it's okay. But you probably have other areas to fill this passion that you have. Again, maybe it's ultimately something that you enjoy doing, your hobbies, the places God has intricately wired you to enjoy. For me personally, that's the gym. Not that I enjoy it. Again, it's not necessarily a place of passion, but maybe a, I wouldn't even say it's a place of skill, probably a place of need, which will be our, our next point. But in that, I look for areas to serve those around me while I'm there. Again, I don't just view the gym as a place to go lift and leave. I view it as a place to be with the same people at the same time, serving them, loving them so that they can hopefully know Jesus as their savior. So where are you using your passions to glorify the Lord? How has God intricately wired you that you can do that for the glory of God? Again, all of us are different. You might not like what I like. I might not like what you like. But if we serve in our places of passion, we will see God ultimately fulfill his mission here. And look, if you're honestly using your hobbies or your passions just as a place to satisfy self, you're gonna walk away empty. Again, no matter what it is, you're gonna walk away desiring more. So how can you redeem that time to bring glory to your creator? 
So we have a place of skill, a place of passion, and our third place this morning, a place of need. Again, maybe you see a need in your community that North Star's not reaching. Look, I'm be honest. I'm in those Facebook neighborhood groups, and man, whew, they are the worst. Let's be honest. It's like 20 posts about the most, like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't need that. I don't need to know about that. So I keep up with it, not because of the awesome things that could be given to me or that are being sold. I don't keep up with it to know the neighborhood gossip either. I keep up with my Facebook group of my neighborhood to know the needs of the people around me. Man, what, somebody just moved into the neighborhood that from states away, they don't know anybody. How can I go help move furniture? How can I show them the best restaurants in town? And how can I be a friend to them who are new? Man, this couple down the street, they just had a baby. What does it look like for you to be so intentional with your relationship, they trust you to watch their kid so that they can get a night where they can go out? Man, they had a family member pass away. How can you be the first one to help respond? See, I think, to be honest, we have needs around us at all points of our day. We've just gotta be more intentional to look for them. Honestly, to be more intentional on not to avoid them. Like I think I do a lot, and probably you do as well. So we have a place of skill, we have a place of passion and a place of need, and we see ultimately the apostles here, the, the men they call up, they step in to fill a need that doesn't just meet on a Sunday morning. I mean, literally, it says that there are seven men chosen, and it's not an accident that there are seven men, it's one for each day. So one of them's helping on Tuesday with the daily distributions. One of them helps on Thursday. Man, somebody's got the Friday shift. They're ready for their weekend, but they're willing to step up and serve no matter what. And we'll begin to kind of track through over these next few weeks, a couple specific men, even one of the men in this passage, Stephen, he serves till his dying breath. So we see that it's not just a moment of service. It's not a day of service. It's a lifetime of serving others. And to be honest with you, when I first read this passage, I was, I was not happy about it. I was like, man, these apostles are jerks. You guys serve tables, I'm gonna preach. I'm gonna be in front of everybody. I'm gonna have this, the, the honor and the glory and the microphone and the attention, that's my role. You guys serve tables. And as I began to continue to read the passage more than just a glance, what I began to learn and, and really see from the text is that the apostles weren't saying that they were above serving, but the best use of their serving was to preach the word of God and to pray for their people. So for them, what I read is, oh, they're being above it. They weren't seeing as preaching as being above serving. It was the way that they served. So for you, your way of serving may look totally different than mine. For me this week, it was being ready for this moment. It was spending time in the word, it was spending time praying, it was spending time reading and studying. I also play bass guitar, I could have easily played bass today. Hey, look, Lee, take the day off, I'm already gonna be here, man, I'll be up for practice, don't worry, I got it. And my week would have looked very different. I wouldn't have just been preparing notes, I would have been preparing chords, and I would have been trying to memorize my points, and I would have been memorizing runs and transitions, and my attention would have been split all week. Ultimately, it's to the detriment of you. So in this area, the, the apostles aren't being jerks or being you know, prideful in the way that they serve. They are saying the best way to serve you is to spend time praying for you and just preach the word accurately with you. And in the same way, that's a lot of Mike's main role, a lot of my main role. Even this week with our college students, I had to kind of protect my time so I could spend time getting the best word to you guys today. Because ultimately, our role is to serve in the way that God 
has gifted us. Again, the priority is in praying and preaching for them. But that doesn't mean they're above serving. They needed to devote their time to it. And what's interesting, and we'll kind of wrap up this scene here, what's really interesting to note is that the Holy Spirit was moving in this day. And the reason I know that in verse five, it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That don't happen without an act of God, am I right? To please a whole room of 8,000? Like I could give away a $3,000 today and somebody would be like, man, only 1,000? Dude, you're the worst. Like in a group of 8,000 people, pleasing everybody is almost impossible. But through choosing gospel unity and the work of the Holy Spirit, the congregation, the early church was pleased. So the same thing stands for us. How can we come together and choose unity? Scene number three, the result. So we've seen the roadblock, we've seen the problem, we've seen this middle section, the responsibility, who cares for who, what happens, and we finish with the result of what happened on this day. So in verse seven, I'm gonna have you guys kind of fill in a few blanks for me as I read. So read out loud the spots that I stop at. And the word of God continued to, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became to the faith. Again, this is the result of what happened. Conflict came, and look, newsflash, North Star, conflict will come with us. Whether it's your small group, whether it's a Sunday morning, whether it's something I said today, even conflict will come. But how do you resolve the conflict? Because the solution that came on this day in the early church had the word of God increase, disciples become more like Jesus, and priests become obedient. And it's interesting, the priests here are not necessarily like the pastors of the church. These are the Jewish priests. So they have chosen not to believe in Jesus because they're ultimately, one of their main roles is to serve widows. But in that, as the church the 8,000, the body, comes around and serves widows, they see their service and they come to know Jesus as their savior. So again, you may never stand on a stage like this. Some of you are like, please never put me on a stage like that. But the way that you serve the people around you may point them to Jesus quicker than I can from a stage. So how are you looking to serve the people around you? How are you looking to fill in the gap that is around you in this time? Because ultimately, the word of God increased because everybody used their gifts. It's the old phrase, teamwork makes the dream work. And if we as a body today come together in unity behind what Christ has done, we will see a great move of God together as well. We'll see the word of God increase. We'll see people become a lot more like Jesus. And we'll see our community become obedient to who our God is. That's all the early church was. Sinners saved by grace through faith in what Christ had done. Not what they could accomplish, but the finished work of the cross. A savior who's willing to literally put on flesh to live a perfect life, to be hung on the cross and have that flesh ripped off his body, to die, to rise again, defeating death, defeating sin, so you and I could have eternity with our savior today. This is the hope that the early church had found. And they were willing to tell others about this hope. To go to dark places that seem hopeless, bring the hope of the world to them. 
They were willing to leverage what God had placed them in. Again, their places, their skills, their passions, the needs. And they began to glorify God through that. They chose to live sent. And starting next week, we're gonna kind of pivot our sermon series. We're gonna stay in the book of Acts, but we're gonna rebrand. So this is the birth of a movement, what we've been covering these past few days. We have seen um, the past few weeks how the church started. But next week, we're gonna begin to look at specific people in Acts that were leveraging where God had placed them for the sake of the kingdom. So what I wanna do to kind of put a bow on birth of a movement, we had one of our members here at North Star, Ernest Davis, kind of recap where we've been over these past few weeks in birth of a movement and really to send us into our Live Sense series. So take a moment and check this video out real quick. The movement of Christ began with 120 men, which is remarkably few, considering the nation itself had a population of over 4 million comprised of the illiterate, the poor, the blue collar. These weren't traveled men. They were inexperienced, uncultured. Their nation was oppressed. Their government was corrupt. Their religion had no depth. They had no organization, no headquarters, led by men who couldn't even agree on the exact definition of their mission. And to top it all off, it contradicted the social and religious norms of the day, giving too much leverage to women and minority groups, abandoning traditions many felt were ingrained in their life. This movement was doomed to fail. But I tell you one thing, here and now, that movement didn't fail, it succeeded. How do I know it succeeded? Well, we wouldn't be sitting here today if it hadn't. It surpassed any movement in the history of the world. Within 30 years, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ had entered every port, city, and courtyard of the world. Brave men and women died to see it continue. Fallen heroes of our faith, there may be times when it seems like this movement loses steam or veers off course, but the movement of Christ will never stop. There are those who say the United States is a post-Christian nation and that belief in anything absolute is completely absurd. But I say to you that nothing could be further from the truth. The movement of Christ cannot and will not be stopped. There is nothing that man can devise, no ideology or cause that can keep the message of Christ from reaching the ends of the earth. But like those 120 men that decided to give their all to the expansion of the gospel, this movement needs you. As Christ followers, it's our honor and duty to bring the life-changing message of salvation to all. Your station in life doesn't matter. Your education level doesn't matter. Your income level doesn't matter. Your race or ethnicity doesn't matter. Your gender doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is whether or not you are willing to take up the cause 
and further this movement? Will you sit on the sidelines and watch the movement pass you by? Or will you stand up? Will you fight? Will you, at all cost, further the movement of Christ? Because this world is temporary, but salvation and eternity are forever. I challenge each and every one of you to live a life dedicated to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, to live a life that's saved.